Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week we welcome Ben Lerner, who talks to The Guardian's Lindsay Irvin about masculinity and forging fiction from his own life. And Mina Kandasamy joins us in the studio to discuss how autofiction is haunted by the realities of gender. Ben Lerner had already brought out three well-received collections of poetry when he published Leaving the Atocha Station in 2011. This first novel charted the wanderings of Adam Gordon, an American poet adrift in Madrid who mopes around the Prado, parties with young madrileños, struggles with the idea of poetry and takes a bunch of drugs. Readers were enchanted by his subtlety on language and Americans abroad, even as they were thrilled by the correspondences between the life stories of Lerner and his awkward narrator. His second novel, 1004, was the story of an unnamed writer, like Lerner, teaching in New York, who had published a book to great acclaim. Now he returns with The Topeka School, which finds Adam note the air quotes there, in the final year of university. We're in Kansas, as the author was himself in the late 1990s, and Adam, you guessed it, like Lerner, is a debating champion. The novel is in part a meditation on the intellectual traditions that have fueled bullying and fake news in American public life. And when Lerner came to the studio, he began by reading a section where Adam's parents, Jane and Jonathan, who are both psychiatrists, listened to a judge pulling apart their son's debating performance. Yes, you're winning these rounds easily, Evanson said to Adam, with an intensity I thought might have been for our benefit, but you're winning them in the wrong way. This was two days later. We were in another empty classroom after the afternoon's competition had concluded. You're giving fast and fluent speeches from left on the spectrum, and you're going to easily carry judges who share that orientation liberal cosmopolitans, judges from San Francisco and New York, of which there are plenty. My eyes met Jonathan's. Maybe I was being paranoid, but I half expected Evanson to come right out and say the Jews. But imagine you're running for president, and now you're in a swing state. You're an hour or two outside of Pittsburgh, and while you need to be intelligent, you need to be winning hearts as much as minds. What you have in your favor is Kansas. You have Midland American English. I want quick swerves into the folksy. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, that kind of thing. I want you saying, right after some hyper-eloquent riff about Yeltsin breaking a promise, now in Kansas we call that a lie. After you go off about a treaty regulating drilling in the Arctic, now in Kansas we wouldn't shake on that. I don't care if they're not real sayings. Just deliver them like they're tried and true. Say tried and true. Say ain't if you want. You can go agrammatical so long as they know it's a choice, that it's in quotes. Interrupt your highbrow fluency with bland sound bites of regional decency. After recovering from those jabs, Lindsay Irvin asked Lerner why he wanted to use his own experience as a champion debater to make a state-of-the-nation novel. 
Well, I mean, I wanted to write a family saga, a story about a family's prehistory that could also, to a certain degree, be a prehistory of the Trump era. Um, and to think about how one family's reckoning with certain questions of patterns and, yeah, and, and prehistory, both known and repressed, could also be brought into relation with this larger set of social issues and forces. So I think a novel feels writable to me when I have something that, that's on the micro level that feels like it might also have implications, broader social implications, yeah. The central uh, character here is Adam Gordon, although he, he appears alongside his, his mother and father, jo uh, Jane and Jonathan. And he is somebody you have written about before. The, deal, the first novel, he was a somewhat shiftless graduate student <laughs> in, in Spain. Uh, but as we see him here, he's kind of, he's a fairly, he's something of a prodigy preparing to leave high school. What, what led you there? Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which there are kind of two Adams in this novel. There's the Adam who's in the class of 1997, the graduating high school class in Topeka, the adolescent Adam. And then there's kind of the subtler, implied, older Adam who's writing this book from the Brooklyn of the present where he's become a father. And it's to a certain degree about the older Adam um, trying to remember the experience of the younger Adam, but also to often remember it from the vantage of his parents and because now as a parent himself, he has as much access um, to his to his parents as he does to the um, the perspective of the adolescent version of himself. So I wanted and, and it to be before and after the other Adams. And those sense. narrative voices kind of flicker in and out of the the narrative threads, don't they? Sometimes That's right. different voices appear in a context where you'd sort of expect one to carry on. That's right, because for me, the drama of the book is the older Adams' effort to imagine these other minds and vantages. Like, it's not a book where I like you know the goal is to just perfectly and omnisciently being able to inhabit other consciousnesses it's more about the dramatization of the struggle to imagine other minds and also to encounter the limits of that process of imagination like Adam doesn't doesn't even have full access to the younger version of himself but he wants to be able to imagine um, the kind of people around him and to think about how the voices that surrounded him when he was young were, you know, were, were have shaped him in the present. Is he a figure you you think you're going to carry on returning to? You become a kind of intellectual version of Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't seem to ever really be able to predict what I'm going to write next, but I kind of doubt it because I feel like this is a trilogy, which is, you know, this book is the prehistory of the other two books. I keep thinking of it as the unconscious of the other two books in a certain way. And I think I always needed to write a Topeka novel, like of this kind of formative childhood experience. And now I feel like I've written both the third term of the trilogy and it's also the prequel to the other two books. So it feels like a closed circle. So I don't mm -hmm. have a sense of, of whether or not he's, he's an avatar I would ever deploy in fiction again. But if I've learned anything from writing these novels, it's that I'm not really in control. You made your name as a, as a poet and, and also as a, a novelist with more or less avant-garde experimental writing. And compared to them, this, this novel looks really quite conventional. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like that, that's a kind of storytelling style that you've, you've arrived at naturally and that we'll, you'll continue with? Well, it's weird because I, I mean, I, I totally know what you mean. And it is the, it's the most conventional novel that I've written in the sense that it's, 
intergenerational. It has multiple centers and multiple voices. It has a little bit less maybe about um, kind of art and poetry, whereas the other novels were to a certain extent kind of vehicles for literary and art criticism, among many other things. But there are also ways in which I feel this novel is the strangest novel I've written too. I mean, in part because of that issue of 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 where there are tears in the voices, mm. you know, like you're, you're, you'll read a section that's very much um, a kind of somewhat conventional effort to write in the voice of an other, but then there's a kind of glitch in the voice that reveals it to be the work of the older Adam trying to imagine or channel his mother's voice or whatever. So there's a sense in which I feel like I, I did work within a framework of conventions, of, of comparative conventionality, but often because it gave me something to kind of strategically disrupt. Yes. Um, and there are other voices that Donald Trump kind of bursts in yeah. at one point. Yeah, I mean, you know, the book is kind of about the genealogy of the voice that's writing it, and a voice is a corporate thing. I mean, a voice is made up of many voices. It's always a tissue of contradictions, and I wanted the novel to kind of dramatize that as opposed to present, you know, asocial, perfectly formed interior voices that are separate from the other, um, you know, influences of the world. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what... Um, what I'll be able to do next um, or or the degree to which it'll be conventional or unconventional. But I think that whenever you're working in a genre or a set of conventions, the great gift of having conventions is that they give you things to strategically mess up, you know, for yes. dramatic effect. An awful lot of these de- the details of this mm-hmm. novel are drawn from what, you know, the, the, uh, the facts we know about your right. life. Why did that make sense as a, as a, a, as a way to write about modern America? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a couple of things. Like one is, I mean, for this book as the kind of third term in a trilogy, I kind of wanted to write, like I said, like the prehistory of the other books and kind of complicate this Adam Gordon figure by kind of describing some of the formative experiences of, of his life in a way that would kind of change the valence of the other novels. I mean, there are a couple of things. Like one is the the theme, you know, of the theme of this novel is very much about um, prehistory and the way that you have to work with the kind of family mythology stories and experiences that you inherit and the way that, you know, you try to find freedom to break certain patterns and in other ways you try to honor certain patterns or legacies. And it seemed to me that working with some of kind of autobiographical material, but shaping it into fiction would be the way to most intensely dramatize that series of thematic concerns, you know? Um, The other thing is that I got really interested in this biographical thing about the place I grew up, which was Topeka, Kansas, which went on the one hand was this Um, very red state with a very masculinist culture where you really weren't supposed to talk about your feelings. Like if you were a guy and you were talking, you needed to be talking trash. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there was this thing called the Menninger Foundation, this huge international psychiatric clinic, which had brought people like my parents and people from all over the world. And that was an institution that ran on talk. You know, it was all about expression and talk therapy. And which is odd because Adam kind of grows up, it seems in a a little island of, of, uh, more or less bohemian liberality. That's right, except he's totally desperate to pass as a real man in the masculinist culture outside of the household. So I got interested in the way there could be, I could kind of depict this childhood torn between these two very different um, relationships to masculinity and to speech. Uh, 
I mean, the only other thing I'd say about the autobiographical is that there's a way in which, you know, I, I totally understand this, the charge that, you know, that writing about yourself is kind of narcissistic. But there's also a way in which, for me, it's about acknowledging the particularity of your experience and your vision and resisting a kind of historical universality, right? Where like the white guy's gonna write the great American novel that can speak for everyone. I think that's a bad myth of universality and sometimes writing out of a way that acknowledges the particularity of your experience can help kind of work against that universalizing you, tendency. You have to slightly step outside it in order to write from within it. Don't you? Totally, yeah. And also that you like you're, you know, I don't like it, it's one thing if you're like writing novels that are about just how great you are, you know, but but for me it's in part about like working with the material you're most embarrassed about or that you can feel ashamed about and like making that material for art and kind of risking risking that. Yes. But one of the bits of prehistory that gets, I think, the most attention here is Adam's high school career as a in the debating society. Yeah. It's very in, in, intensely dramatized um, as he tries to master the rhetorical techniques that are in play uh, in politics. Um, one of the most becomes extremely ominous uh, techniques is the the spread. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk about yeah, so that. Yeah, so the spread, which I think I've been asking around, but it sounds like it's a distinctly American phenomenon. I've never heard of it before. Yeah, which is this crazy uh, thing that happened in high school debate and is still going strong. It's basically, it's a strategy where in order to win a debate, you make as many arguments as fast as you can in the allotted time, the goal being to overwhelm your opponent so that they won't be able to respond to each argument in turn, because if you don't respond to an argument, the rule is that it's conceded. So the practical effect of this strategy is that you have these adolescent kids speaking at just unbelievably quick rates, you know, spits flying, people are hyperventilating, they're passing out. So, you know, as I describe it in the book, it's this like reduction of what's ostensibly an exchange of ideas or debates about policy to this like glossolalic ritual, mm -hmm. right? And it becomes this kind of spectacle of athletic unreason. And um, to a certain degree, it, it stands for kind of the emptying out of the content of political language and the kind of collapse of language in this extreme. And on the other hand, Adam, who's both very disgusted by it, and, and the book kind of offers it as a metaphor for the kind of bankruptcy of collective political speech, Adam also sees these like little glimmers of poetic possibility in it, like when he's participating in it and he starts to feel kind of taken over by language. I didn't exactly. realize that as, as a read that as a glimmer of hope, I must say. I think, it, I think the glimmer of hope where he feels taken over by language is that he's kind of re-encountering the mundane miracle of language as such, right? That like, that like we're capable, like he, it's a return to an experience of the stuff of language or the plasticity of language and the idea that we can like make columns of air vibrate in a way that carries meaning and allows for consciousness to be shareable. He kind of re-encounters a really foundational poetic possibility mixed into this really kind of gross and ridiculous spectacle of the spread. Yes, as it begins to generate, de to degenerate across the nation. Yeah. But as, as he, as Adam is trying to master these uh, discourses, I suppose, that the, another character, Darren Eberhardt, is trying and failing to yeah. master the most basic sort of social rhetoric or social languages. Yeah. I wonder if you could, I mean, he seems like he's, he's a character, he, he appears to have quite severe learning difficulties. Yeah. 
Yeah, he does. I mean, it's not, you know, the book and doesn't he, kind of specify them, but yeah. And he has, his, his is a kind of counter perspective on, uh, on the narrative all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, Adam and Darren are kind of linked in these ways that, that neither even understands. For example, Darren's psychologist at the foundation is Adam's dad, but that's something that Adam can't know. Yeah, I mean, Darren and Adam are totally opposite in a certain way. Adam has all this privilege. He has a lot of language. He has a lot of family support. Um, he's good at school or whatever. Darren, you know, kind of can't cut it at school. He's had a difficult father who's who's died in a car accident. He has an overworked mom and kind of like no one, no community can assimilate Darren. So he's a kind of loner. And one of the things that happens in the book is that Adam is one of the high school seniors who brings Darren into the like party scene with in disastrous, awkward, yeah. in an awkward way that has disastrous results. But but Darren and Adam are really intensely linked in a fundamental way, which is that they're both totally dominated by their anxiety about whether or not they can pass as real men, as like tough mm-hmm. guys. And they kind of share this obsession, which impacts them differently based upon their different resources. But but there is a kind of symmetry there there's a there, there there's a kind of doubling between them which would presumably seems to be an anxiety that's shared across the whole of Topeka and the Midwest and the United States and the, probably the you know everywhere yeah I mean I think I think I think masculinity is largely constituted by the terror of being emasculated <laughs> you know and the book is interested in in some of the ways that 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 terror of not being a real man, whatever that means, causes people to, you know, to regress into different kinds of like modes of violent self-assertion. And indeed, and against this is a more kind of adaptive um, stories are those of Adam's parents, mm-hmm. Jonathan and Jane. Uh, they uh, their careers sort of Im- seem to embody the somewhat disappointed hopes of um, therapeutic mm-hmm. psychotherapeutic culture. Mm-hmm which kind of sometimes seems almost to define America, but who here we see whose utopian hopes are endlessly frustrated and and real life does not seem to teach people how to correct the mistakes Mm -hmm. that uh, their psychologies lead them towards. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I think that the therapy is certainly not idealized in the book. Like, there's all kinds of misbehavior at the foundation among psychologists, all kinds of obliviousness among the parents. But I also think that like Jane's modes of listening and um, some of the kind of pressurized speech of therapy are also held up as counters to the like weaponized eloquence of the debaters or the kind of obfuscation of a certain kind of masculinist diatribe. So I think that the the possibility, you know, that, that in a way like the good therapy in the book that's modeled is the possibility of listening um, and that the therapeutic frame sometimes creates the possibility of a way of listening that really solicits authentic kind of interpersonal communication versus the other modes of language, largely masculine language in the book that can be about a kind of bullying or a kind of performance of superiority or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's definitely not an idealistic treatment of therapy, but I do think of it kind of as an homage to to the parents in a way and the way that in particular, Jane's voice, well, both parents, that both parents' voices give Adam counter models to some of the other the other voices he encounters, whether it's the you know the debate coach or or the 
you know, the, the adolescent posturing or, or the language of Donald Trump, which is, as you mentioned, kind of in the in, in Adam's language, too, by the end of the book. So I, I think I think at its best, therapy is a counter model um, to the more brutal forms of eloquence or uh, or the, or the, lang- the brute language of violence, which is also kind of butting in exactly periodically the, the brute the brute and very material language of violence or the kind of painful muteness of a Darren character mm. um, who kind of has has no language really uh, by the end of the book and uh, finally you you will be uh, no doubt aware that uh, you are one of a number of writers contemporary writers who are drawing on factual details from mm-hmm. their own life um, to write what it what are described as novels with Knausgaard, Olivia Lang, Chris Krauss, Alexander Hemon, mm-hmm. and so on. Do, do you feel some sort of kinship with those writers? Um, and does the term autofiction, does that make very much sense to yeah. you? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I, those are some, some of those writers I admire, admire very much. I mean, I think... I mean, I think there are all kinds of reasons why right right now that authors are interested in working with autobiographical material. I mean, on the one hand, that's kind of as old as the novel itself, right? And I think we shouldn't exaggerate the novelty of it. On the other hand, I think it makes sense in a world that's so obsessed with um, this, like, self-curation and the kind of image of, of the avatars that so many people live by, whether it's, like, you know, on Instagram or whatever, that literature would be a kind of slower more thoughtful, more complicated, more nuanced version of that to try to kind of think about actually the way a self is constructed, presented, what parts of our identities are changeable or variable fictions, you know? So I think I think one reason why it makes a lot of sense that people are interested in that now is that it is also a way of kind of opening a window on that cultural obsession and other often faster media. Um, but I think there's a lot of difference, like in those lists, like somebody like Carl Ove, like like Kanausgard, whose whose work is very fascinating to me. Like he, like in the My Struggle books, like he really wanted to break literary form, right? He was like, I'm I'm not mm. going to write a novel, like I'm not interested in literature. I'm going to kind of write everything down I can remember, and that was kind of like the wager of it. It was a kind of anti-literary literary project in a certain way. Every detail, even the most boring of exactly. Life. And I think that was a kind of a very interesting experiment in a lot of ways. Whereas, like, even though I'm using autobiographical material to a certain extent, I'm kind of the opposite of that. Like, I I'm not at all about telling the nonfiction truth. I'll, I'll alter the, the the materials I'm using in order to make what I think of as the most significant and formally effective structure. Do you know what I mean? So, so like you, you can be working with autobiographical material, but still have an entirely different set of aesthetic commitments. And I'm very interested in patterning, like we've been talking about. And um, so when I'm making a work of art, I'm always ready to sacrifice the biographical to what I think of as the more important truth of the work of art. Um, and I'm very invested in the kind of traditional resources of the form, whereas somebody like Knausgaard, I think, I mean, I don't mean to speak for him, but I think he is not typically as invested in that. So that's just to say, like, it's how you work with the biographical material that ends up kind of defining you, not just the fact that you are working with biographical material, especially because all writing is to a certain extent 
um, going to be caught up in the biography of the person who's doing it. Right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I thank you. Ben Lerner. The Topeka School is published by Macmillan in the US and Granter in the UK. After the break, the poet and novelist Mina Kandasamy joins us to discuss how gender affects the way autofiction is read. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Here with us now is Mina Kandasamy, a poet and author of three novels, The Gypsy Goddess, When I Hit You, and most recently, Exquisite Cadavers. Claire, you've been a fan of Mina's for a while, so why did you want to bring her in to talk about autofiction? Well, Mina, I think it's it's fair to describe you not just as an autofictor, but as <laughs> you're one of our most po- political novelists, aren't you, in these in these in these three books. And I first um, came to you through your 2014 debut novel, A Gypsy Goddess, um, which dealt with a, ma- a massacre of agricultural workers in Tamil Nadu in 1968. And rather like the South Korean novelist Han Kang did with her novel Human Acts, you pushed the story to places where narrative can't go or usually doesn't go. So, for example, in the climactic central section of that, you didn't attempt to humanise the charred remains of the 42 victims. You looked at them through the eyes of the police report um, filed by your central investigator. So, you know, and just to quote one of the least disturbing, a, um, a charred skull and tiny body, other details not known. These are 42 corpses. Now, the reason I've gone, talked a bit at length about that is because I think that this is actually contextualising your work, because to describe you as someone who writes autofiction, who writes autobiographically, is actually a bit of a nonsense or a misclassification because what you are is a political novelist. Yes, I've been running away actually from uh, the idea of autobiography, uh, partly because that's how women's writing is always seen or filtered through. So I think it's been a huge reaction to that. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not right telling my story because that's what they do to women. They say, oh, she's written one book and it's her story. And then they're like... Oh, As a way of minimising it. Yes. Yeah. Nevertheless, When I Hit You, was you were open about the fact that it, mm-hmm. it was inspired by your experience of domestic violence mm-hmm. in, a, in a short marriage. Uh, yes, uh, and and that was the. It was actually. Uh, it's a little bit of my own ra- journey as a writer because I think that you know I'm a woman, but I'm not going to do things that people expect women to do, or they you know like try to box women into. So I'm going to do stuff like you know deal with politics, deal with caste, deal with you know class struggle in India, and so that's how I did my first novel. But then you realize that even as you as much as you want to intellectually escape uh, social stereotyping you're confronted even in the far left with misogyny and violence and which you actually encounter. So you realize, oh, no, uh, it's not something for me to gloss over. And uh, therefore, I decided to actually also write about that uh, because there's no way to divorce what's happening uh, politically from what also happens in the domestic sphere. They're just 
just one and the same, isn't it? Nevertheless, there is always this this pressure to separate off what women write about in the domestic <laughs> sphere as being something that just belongs in the domestic sphere, isn't there? And you had an experience with a, po- a Polish publisher wanting to repackage "When I Hit You" as a as a non-fiction memoir. Uh, yes, and I, I had to I had to say that I had to tell them that. Uh, if 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 I wanted to write it, it would have been a different book because you know I spent years writing this. But also, telling them that oh look, it's not not Nosgard. He's always uh, marketed as a fiction writer, isn't it? And we all know that he's writing his own story. So I think for it's also a question of who gets to be classified as what or who gets to call the shots, isn't it? And uh, that's something I was thinking about. So so you you said. And in in this um, your most recent book and novel, Exquisite Cadavers, which is in a way a, re- a, a reaction to the reaction to when I hit you, you wrote um, by describing it. This is by describing when I hit you offhandedly and repeatedly as a memoir. Some reviewers were sidestepping the entire artistic edifice on which the work stood and were instead defining me by my experienced raped Indian woman, beaten up wife, and that's a very strong thing to say. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but also, it was something that um, uh, is something that I often feel, isn't it? Like, it, it, not only in terms of uh, uh, you know this domestic violence novel, so to say, but in general, when I'm asked to speak, I'm always asked to reduce to my subject position. So, or you speak because you're from the oppressed caste, or you're going to speak because uh, you are like a, a you know a woman. So it comes from what you actually face instead of what are you doing with this as a writer or you know I think more in terms of you know the intellectualizing of it I think is always absent which is also why I sometimes think uh, does it what does it have to do with you know people who are in power power structures and how they they only uh, on the one hand they want a certain infantilized expressions say the poems of Rupi Kaur so oh, this has to be like somebody learning to speak. Rupi so, Kaur being yeah. a uh, the uh, the Canadian poet, po- yeah, poet. poet. So yeah, they want you to either write very simple, simplistic, you know, almost like a child who is learning to speak, or on the other hand, it's oh, okay, it's just like this person is interesting because interesting things have happened to them, as opposed to this person is working with raw material and making it into a novel. So what's fiction here? So I think it's, uh, when you talk about simplistic versus non-simplistic, mm. you're you're very intertextual, aren't you? So for example, when I hit you, the subtitle of that novel is a portrait of the artist as a young wife, mm-hmm. which is obviously a reference to James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man. And when I looked it up, just out, just for fun, I looked up how portrait is regarded, what genre it is, mm-hmm. portrait of the artist as a young man mm-hmm. is regarded. I discovered that it's described as a Kunstler roman, <laughs> a, coming of a, a coming of age of the artist novel, which is a subdivision of Bildungsroman, a coming of age novel, i.e. nobody's mm-hmm. ever really su- suggested that it's only, in mm-hmm. air, air quotes, a memoir, whereas mm-hmm. people have suggested that your novel is only, and you sort of anticipated that reception in your subtitle to this novel. I can't just go on everywhere and say, oh, nobody's taking me intellectually seriously enough. Oh, no, because, you know, you're going to become just somebody who complains a lot. So I was like, oh, the the way to do it in the most transparent manner was the third book. So, look, this is what's happening here with me. And this is not out of fiction or memoir. It's just like how I'm taking things from me, from around the world, and how I'm going to filter that into fiction, transpose it on the lives of this couple, Karim and Maya, and let them play, you know? And therefore I was like, oh, this is this is the process. This is what's actually going inside my head, and I welcome you to share. I also think part of it is the problem of being writers, where it's not like you can in- invent, uh, invite somebody to your studio and look at, oh, this is my raw material, this is what I made, or like... 
series of paintings. So this is my, you know, take photographs and say, this is how it evolved, you know. So there's no way you can actually show evolution. And I, for me, I wanted the transparency, like... Well, in, but in a way, now in your third novel, you do show evolution, don't you? And you do yeah. it in a in a clever way, in, in what you call an ellipo, which literally means an experiment. Mm-hmm. And you do it by having a fictional, totally fictional story about a couple who could not be confused for mm. you. But in the margins, you mm-hmm. have another text, which is about how, which is about you and how you came about this story. How you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was the whole thing to to cause this transparency, to to find a way to express this transparency. You're, you're showing the kind of engine working. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I did. Yeah. Um, but there's another aspect to this which we've sort of skirted around mm-hmm. about the autofictional side. Is about that it's not just a discrimination about gender. It's also about race. And you write in in your third in the third novel. You say the reception of of of, of the second one reinforced my perception that to a Western audience, writers like me are interesting because we are from a place where horrible things happen or horrible things have happened to us or a combination of the above. No one discusses our work in the framework of the novel as an evolving form. Uh, I do. I do find this, and uh, actually, these are two. Uh, two contradictory impulses because on the one hand how is your reception doing and as uh, you just quoted those exact lines on it but also the other fact is we are moving slowly in a world where we are afraid of writing anything beyond our own experience for fear of being mistaken but also for the fear that uh, we might end up you know what I would say making a consumerism out of it or appropriating out of it but a lot of art is appropriation and the big question, underlying question for me is, are you doing it with your heart in the right place? Like, will you put your life on the line for the people you are writing about? And I think these are crucial questions because it might look from the outside as a question of literature. Like, can you write another person's life? But for me, it's a hugely political question on the street because there is a certain kind of identity politics where people are shutting out each other. But also in that sense, it negates the idea of what the classic left would stand for, which is that you are going to be on the streets fighting for anybody who is discriminated. It's the kind of thing that Shaguara says, like if you're angry at injustice, you are a comrade of mine. And I really think the same thing translates to writing. So if you're worried about my condition, writing about it with your heart in the right place is imperative, is important, because if you got a voice, if you got a space, you have to use this space. And so for me, I was like uh, I want to write about you know as, as but also so I want to write but not just as an Indian but also you know about what's happening to Britain itself and you know the other kinds of questions around let's say the prevent program and what it means so I, I went the prevent pro, pro, program being about um, preventing terrorism or radicalism Again, radicalism yeah. Yeah, yeah so how do you support that and against who is this program deployed or what's the what's the you know s- subtext of actually talking about prevent everywhere so and these are things that I question but also there's a history of anthropology in which it's always, first of all, white people going into brown and black spaces and describing them. We never really have <laughs> the crossover thing, like, you know, somebody going on, how do people in Norway live in the snow and just writing, you know, an ethnography of, you know, white lives uh, from a person of colour's perspective. So this is also something... So, so your characters in Exquisite Cadavers, are, you've got a, a mixed-race woman married to an Arabic man. Uh, an yeah, Arab man. Yes, yeah. an Arab man. So it, there was a, the reason to choose that was also so that it doesn't just become the Daisy South Asian experience, but to to just move the goalpost a bit. But also, obviously, all writing takes place um, under a certain climate. And I think the climate of Islamophobia is really huge. And Islamophobia is often 
uh, read alongside what's happening in the Middle East or ISIS or things like that. So there's a way in which I think his character would have allowed this to happen much more than to me. But one of the things that you say repeatedly, or your your narrator character, and again, you've now confused me because oh, in this new novel you have the characters, then mm. you have you, Myself, your narrative. Yes. Yeah. To what extent is the you character in the marginalia you? Oh, and that's it, me. And to, uh, that is actually you. That's me, but you yeah. keep there, that you, one of the repetitive things, the repeated things mm-hmm. you say is, I will write about that elsewhere. So I, you have ideas and you have themes, things are coming to you. You say, no, no, this doesn't belong to this story. I, will, I will write about it later. Book. We're always crediting like writers and novelists and filmmakers and artists with plot. But I some I feel in real life that the people who are making the most bizarre, outlandish plots are like people in power, the ruling class, the police. So in India, you have this case like they've stitched up out of nowhere, like picked up activists all across the country and, you know, like kind of made a, you know, like a big collage and say, oh, there has a plot to assassinate the prime minister. And then you see this is like, nobody's going to believe this plot. But while it's there, people are in jail. They continue to be in jail for a year. And uh, it takes, it tells you like the sinister side of, you know, imagination in a sense. But nevertheless, so you're now here, living in England, like like your characters in this most recent novel. Mm-hmm. Um, this novel is is short. It's taken, I get the feeling it's taken you by surprise how well it's been received. It was... It's it's a hundred pages of experiment with two parallel texts. No. You've arrived. <laughs> no, for me the 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 book was like uh, I'm absolutely surprised because I anticipated a readership like very much like my dissertation, two and a half readers. You know, the editor who has to read it, then my father who always reads whatever I write, and somebody who you know reads half of it and sits down to write a review or something. So you know, in a sense, you're like it's not going to really appeal to everybody. So. And that's all for this week. Thanks to Ben Lerner, Lindsay Irvin and Mina Kandasamy. Next week, we'll be cooking up a storm with Priya Basil. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And remember, you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Epoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening. And goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.